0: please visit Knopf.com For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit org. Today we are talking about God. What is God in Judaism? Why is God in Judaism? Um, and so on and so forth. And before we begin... Um, uh, what i like to do, and you, uh, I've done this in the past few classes, um, is to start with, with where you're at with this topic. Um, so just before we start getting into any of the material, any of the conversation, um, what questions do you have about God in general, or about the Jewish view of God, or the role of God in, in Judaism? Um, and as I, uh, well actually I have. Alright. Questions, yeah, Sam. I have a question about like the afterlife. what happens like you always hear about like heaven and stuff and, like it's always associated with like Christianity stuff? Awesome. Others, yeah.
1: So I feel like I know so many Jews who don't believe in God and so how is, is that so?
0: Yeah, so can you be Jewish?
1: And it's God and prayer. You know, some people see it as like quest line, like problem solve line. But, but I, the more I've learned about Judaism, it seems to be more than that. In addition, awesome, great relationship between God and prayer.
2: Yeah, I would say even the way he wrote that, it's maybe not entire congruent with I guess different sex like the yes. way we can say his name, read his name write his or her name the masculine attributes versus um, like why Why does it have such human like yeah
3: gender
0: uh, and I'm going to use the, the academic word for that anthropomorphism
3: I know this is I hope I explained it right but I know it like in
0: the Bible um, or the Tanakh, that God chose the Jews. But is there a discussion in the Talmud, like whether like Jews chose God? Great. Um, I'm going to like broaden that question out with um, sort of like what what's the deal with chosenness? Because I think it's actually it's it's a it's a challenging question, right? I mean, it's not only uh, a question on the level of you know uh, what's the direction of the choosing uh and you know is it one or the other or both um, but also what are the implications of chosenness right does it mean um does it mean that uh, uh that first of all, does it mean is it exclusive, right? Uh, does God choose the Jews to the exclusion of the other people? To of other people, um, how do we deal with other people who also claim to be God's chosen people? And one of the um, there there are various claims within Christianity, for example, of um, of um, uh, supersession, right? That uh, that that uh, the the, uh, the body of Christ or the the. Um, uh the the universal church super is the new Israel right and sort of supersedes in chosenness. Um, Muslims also uh, in some way believe in chosenness right so so when we say cho- when we believe in chosenness does that mean that is it an exclusionary claim right um and is it a superiority claim? Right? Is it? Does it mean that that Jews are on some level saying that we are better than other people? And if it's not a superiority claim, then what? Then what is it? So, so it's a it's a complicated question. Chosen this, I'm not sure if we're going to totally unpack it today. But um, but it's there, and it and it's embedded in how we understand uh, how we understand God, right? Uh, I mean, it's you know, uh, um, you know, for just like to kind of start with the conclusion. Um, usually we think of God, or let me rephrase that, um, in Western culture, we have been taught to believe in a God who is, um, who is perfect, right? But a God who is perfect can't choose. Choice is, uh, implies imperfection because there's always choices that you can't make and some choices that you don't make correctly, right? So, um, uh, so that so already there is a problem with how we are taught on some level to understand God and what our tradition sometimes says um, it, God does in the world, right? Um, uh, right. Uh, so anyway, it's a whole thing. So we'll we'll touch on probably some of that stuff, but maybe we we'll won't unpack it all together. Yeah. It's
1: closely related to what you were just saying, but just where? How is God all powerful and all knowing and knows? things that happen and
0: makes things happen, but yet, you know, why do bad things happen? Mm. So I'm going, ask, I'm going to ask two questions there. All the omnis, uh, which is like uh, yeah, omniscient, God is all-knowing, right? These are claims that God is all-knowing. Uh, omnipresent, God is everywhere. Uh, Omnipotence, God is all-powerful. Uh, and omnibenevolent, that God is all-good. Uh, and if God is all of those things, then why do bad things happen to good people? Um, and the flip of it, you know, why do, why do good things happen to bad people?
2: I just have one, I hate to be so specific, but you know, on Aesop, where you open up the door and you leave out the wine, and then that blessing that says, like, for God to, like, pour his, you know, pour his wrath upon other nations, and that's not enough, that part, that part, that aspect of God is very, mm. uh, makes it hard to include that in our life and our, that is that the Jewish God?
0: For if people don't know what Sarah's talking about, so the more famous part of that section of the Passover Seder uh, is opening the door uh, and welcoming in Elijah the Prophet. Right, we usually have a, a, a special cup on the table. If there are kids around, you might you know play a game to see if Elijah is drinking any wine. Any wine from the cup, or whatever, right, so that's a more famous part of the Seder, but right there alongside of it is a tradition to say um, uh, pour out your wrath upon the nations who do not know you, right, which is in some way connected with this claim now there are, um, there's a whole historical analysis of how that came to be part of the Seder, but it is in some way rooted in, in this question in this, in an in, in assumption about God, first assumption about God's relationship with the Jewish people as opposed to other people. Uh, but also, does God hate? Right? Or does God have wrath? Right? Or, um, this is an afterlife question, too, right? Does God punish? And I guess a, a, a similar question, right? It relates to quite a bad example of good people. Um, does. God, reward. Sorry, I can't that, but, um, All right, so those are really, uh, really challenging questions, it's really challenging passages in the, in the Haggadah. Um, and it is also um, uh, related to a, a critique that, uh, that uh, sometimes is made and, and historically had been made a lot, by Christians about Jews, or by Christian from Christianity about Judaism, that the God of the Gospels, the God of the New Testament, is a God of love, and the God of the Hebrew Bible, uh, the God of the Old Testament, is a God of anger and a God of wrath and things like that. Now there is, you know, there there, there is certainly. Uh, evidence to substantiate that claim in both sides, right, that there are places in the Old Testament where God is very wrathful, uh, and um, uh, but there are also evidence to the contrary in in, in both Sides of the equation, right? So there's plenty of places in the in the uh, in in the Hebrew Bible where God is uh, is is very loving and compassionate, right? And places in the in the New Testament where where God isn't always so like you know buddy isn't always the buddy Jesus. So um, if people who never saw the movie Dogma don't know what I'm talking about. But um, I have to remember that like my my like at this point my references like that are dated. So um, anyway, you've seen the movie Dogma. Uh, You know what I'm talking about when I say, buddy, Jesus. Okay. So um, if you don't know what I'm talking about, go out and see the movie Dogma because it's really good. movie. Okay. Uh, Any other questions? All right. Let's jump into it. What I want to do is uh, start out with a little bit of the of study. Uh, On page 114 in your book, uh, you'll find a text from the book of Genesis. Uh, It's a relatively famous text uh, that is uh, both uh, 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 recognized and and studied by uh, by Jewish and Christian traditions uh, about the patriarch Jacob. Uh, It's actually, if you follow the Jewish lectionary cycle. Uh, We read this uh, in the Torah portion just a few weeks ago. Uh, And uh, so this is the story of Jacob wrestling with a mysterious figure who assaults him in the middle of the night, uh, who apparently turns out to be uh, an an angel or some other kind of divine being. All right, so I want you to study this in pairs, read it together in pairs, and you might want to jot down some questions to to discuss. Um, Here, you know what, I'll just turn this around and write them on the board. Um, So the first is... Um, why do you think the Jewish people would come to be known as the people of Israel? And I don't mean by the people of Israel as like people from the modern state of Israel that took its name from what we're reading now, okay? So, um, going back to the source, why are the Jewish people known as the people of Israel? Second question, um, how do you relate the idea of wrestling with God. Okay? The third question, what kind of God wrestling have you done in your life? Final question. These these are just final suggested questions. You can talk about whatever you want to with respect to this text. These are some suggestions. Um, How is the idea of wrestling with God comfortable or uncomfortable for you. Okay, so find a partner or a group of three uh, and read this text together. Uh, don't be afraid to read it out loud and, and get into it. Try to, for the first step is to try to understand the text, what's going on, what's it saying, uh, and, uh, and then have a little bit of a conversation about, uh, about the, about the meaning. And if these questions are helpful or meaningful to you as you discuss it, encourage you to use them. Um, so I'd love to hear what was going on in in some of those conversations and we want to hold out for me something that came up in your discussions how you relate to this idea of wrestling with God
3: I am very comfortable with it Um, I actually was in college and I was a Christian studies uh, minor and I had a very intellectual approach to my religion I was sure of it I knew exactly what I was going to do I went to other countries to proselytize um I really knew what I believed, and um, I eventually came across a few books about Judaism, and my world was absolutely turned upside down. Like, And I'm a very intellectual person, and Judaism really caught me intellectually before anything else. Um, so I'm very comfortable with the concept of wrestling with God, because I think I had to go through a very sh- soul-shattering um, experience in giving up a religion I felt very connected. So I think as a convert, you really do have to wrestle with the concepts of you know who is God is is Jesus part of that is um, all of those questions. So and I one of the things I found amazing about Judaism is that you are allowed to question so many things. And I'm not saying all Christianity doesn't allow you to, but the part of it that I was in, I, any questions I had were immediately just shut down. So I. I love the idea that Judaism allows us to ask questions, like, does God even exist? You know, can you be Jewish?
1: Beautiful.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. 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 I kind of a long, time I mean, I wasn't, like, that even involved in 6th grade, but, um, like, though I was doing happy middle school, I think mean, that was when I just kind of realized, like, I didn't agree with, like, the God that they were teaching me about, and then I had to, like, kind of think about this one religion in
1: another way, and religion, and that, I think we took a, we went there, but we also um, were a little more nuts and bolts, and part of it with, with the uh, question of like, what is the the idea of wrestling and trying to understand the meaning of this what, this parsha that we're reading. Well, first we were both kind of a little confused, like, we we recently both read it, Mm -hmm. you know, just being at shul in the last couple of weeks, and we were going back and forth with, I thought it was interpreted as Jacob wrestling with an angel, but then it seems like he was actually wrestling with God, Mm -hmm. does that mean he's wrestling with him as a human being doing the, like, checkbox things that you do every day, you're physical life and wrestling with your spiritual self and did he come to some awakening conclusion whatever that like it's not about this it's about something bigger and and that's when he just sort of turned sort of a conscious corner mm-hmm. um is it wrestling with and, and how this relates to the people of israel does it relate to you know that Taking it, for example, an observant person that you're wrestling every day with the commandments, with the covenant, with the traditions, versus what the rest of the world is doing. And if they're supposed to be set apart, maybe not that we're choosing, but still sort of in that same ballpark, that you're, if you're a partner, you're wrestling with being different. And what that want that got
0: into, like, what is God, what is yeah. wrestling with God, mm-hmm. God is you, God is in you, God is us, so that's where we, we could go on. Yeah, wow, so there's a lot there, I mean, what, you know, uh, uh, Caleb and Jeff were also talking about this, that the, the, the story itself really defies easy explanation, easy interpretation, um, and I think that, I mean, that, that uh, may be part of the point, it's unclear who or what Jacob is wrestling in this story? Uh, it may be that he's actually not wrestling with anybody. Uh, if you look at the uh, the, the uh, picture on the uh, on the next page, um, it, it's you know it kind of plays I think on that ambiguity of of who it is that Jacob is wrestling, whether he's wrestling with anybody uh, with with anybody different at all, or maybe just another side of himself. Maybe the wrestling itself is a metaphor. Um, uh, You know, this is the story, the context of the story is, uh, 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 just after he flees his, uh, uncle's house in the Haran, uh, and, uh, is, um, uh, anticipating, uh, Reuniting with his brother Aesop who he uh, had deceived out of his birthright um, And he's anticipating that that's not going to be a friendly reunion because the last time he saw Aesop He had of had sworn to kill him the next time he saw him um, And so there's a moment that's sort of like fraught with anxiety that uh, and you can kind of like feel the kind of emotional uh, charge of the scene, especially if you know the context that it comes in. So it's, so it's unclear who he's wrestling and what the wrestling signifies and, and all of that. Uh, and, and it may be that that's part of the point that part of the question about wrestling with God is wrestling with, with ourselves. Uh, and, um, uh, wrestling with our fellow human beings and and uh, learning what it means for brothers and sisters to live together um, uh, and to not uh, deceive each other, to not hurt each other, and right. Um, so all of that is is balled up into this into this package. Um, just it also made me think about the fact you know when in in pop culture, how God is sometimes represented, often God is represented in pop culture as sort of like the Zeus figure, right? So it's like, you know, an old man. Uh, That image is present within Jewish tradition, uh, but it's not exclusive within Jewish tradition. We'll get into some of that a little bit later in our class today. But I'm thinking about uh, how, if you ever saw the movie The Prince of Egypt, it's an animated version of the Exodus story. If you haven't seen it, it's great, and I think you can still get it on Netflix. Um, uh, And um, so Val Kilmer plays Moses, uh, but when God speaks to Moses at the burning bush, and in other times in the movie, the voice is Val Kilmer's, right? I think the implication there is that, uh, that, that on some level, the voice of God within each of us is our, is our own deepest voice, right? Um, the, the, the most recent Exodus movie that was put out like two or three years ago, had, had God was played by a little boy. Uh, which I thought was really interesting, right? It was sort of like like playful and and mischievous little boy, um, which is, uh, you know, a, a, a really unique technique. You have, like, movies where Morgan Freeman plays God, or you have movies where um, you know, you know, that's sort of like the God like is very mischievous and wise. Um, uh, uh, George Burns played God in a similar version of that movie uh, in, in the past. Um, in Dogma, Alanis Morissette plays God, right? So... Um, the whole notion of you know the, this idea of wrestling with God, part of the question as you uh, came up it, as as came up in your conversation, is it, it it kind of evokes the question: Well, you know, who am I imagining that is being wrestled here, right? Um, and and what does the dynamic of that wrestling look like, depending on who the other partner is? So um, that's that's present here. I also want to hold out that the very act of of wrestling with this text in Jewish tradition is understood as a as a wrestling with God. Right? So we believe that we believe it we have we have, we are a tradition of, of sacred scripture, right? So some some Jews believe that the Torah was was written or given by God. Um, some Jews believe that the Torah was divinely inspired. Some Jews don't believe any of that. Um, but nevertheless, the the uh, especially for the first two camps, the um, uh, 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 exploring a text and interpreting a text and struggling with a text and pushing back again, arguing with a text um, is is itself a religious act, is a sacred act, right? So um, the notion that we are that we are playing with and sometimes fighting with words that we are taught are, at some level, divine is itself an expression of this uh, God wrestling impulse that we have within Judaism. Uh, Melanie, I saw your hand up a little while ago. Yeah. Okay. 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 yeah. Uh, right.
4: In the beginning it says why did um, whoever knock his hip on the sock what that got to do with everything? It looked like to me um, getting, getting an advantage because his hip was on the side. Yeah. with these different things. Like, what well, it could be we're making a disadvantage on ourselves. Hmm. You know, we we'll make making when you when you think about it, we do make a disadvantage on ourselves, and then we have to argue with ourselves about what to do or how to do it. It comes up in everyday life, even when you're driving down the street. Hmm. It comes up in everyday life, and you have to figure out what is best. That's what I got on the whole thing.
0: Yeah. It reminds me of that, of that, uh, uh, quote. Um, can't remember now, um, can't remember now what author said it, but that, you know, our greatest fear is not that we're powerless. Right? Our greatest fear is that we're powerful beyond all measure. Right. And so that's, that's what I'm getting out of what you're saying here about what, you know, that the Jacob, it, that it's possible that, that, that Jacob, deliberately disadvantaged himself in this because he feared his own power. Um, which is something that we sometimes do. Uh, and, uh, 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 you know, now I, I, you know, I, I, um, anyway, I just want, yeah, I want to hold that. I mean, that's really, that's really worth, worth thinking about. Um, great. Okay. Um, so this, what we did is, I think, on some level, um, the the essence of Judaism: struggling with the text, um, uh, struggling with its significance, uh, and struggling with its with its meaning and what, if anything, uh, God, uh, whatever or whoever that is, may or may not be saying to us from this text. That I think is is on one level the essence of what Judaism is, and it's not the totality of it. Right? So, um, so in, in the same sense that there is an impulse within Judaism and a strong one, uh, to, uh, to, to wrestle, to fight with, uh, to challenge God and the idea of God, um, there are, uh, there are other impulses as well that are, that are important to hold out. One is, um, let's call it, um, ahavat, Hashem, which means love of God. Right? And, uh, and in fact, you know, one of the, uh, most famous commandments in the Torah, um, is, mm-hmm. you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Uh, and, uh, and so that too is an important uh, concept within Judaism, not just to wrestle with God, uh, but to but to love God in, in, in this in the same sense that say you might be in a romantic relationship or uh, that I love my spouse, right? So yeah, I do fight with my spouse sometimes, uh, but I also do a lot for my spouse, um, uh, uh, even if I don't understand why it is that she's asking me to do it, and if it doesn't inherently make sense, um, not because I'm afraid of the reprisal. Although that's an, another thing I'll talk about in a second, but, uh, uh, but, but because of course I'm going to do it for you. Um, so that's one dimension also of the Jewish relationship, Jewish idea of, of our relationship with God. And the other is Yirat Hashem, which means the fear of God, or, uh, because we moderns, uh, are, uh, in, in democracies of somewhat uncomfortable with the idea of, of that kind of power dynamic, we sometimes say the awe of God, um, uh, awe, the awe of God. Uh, but I think that more accurately, uh, more historically, it's the the fear of God is uh, is an aspect of, of uh, Judaism. So um, one of the ways that uh, that the rabbinic tradition and medieval tradition uh, would identify whether or not you were uh, an, an upstanding person, uh, whether you were a good Jew or not, as they say, were well, you were you a were you. A, 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 uh, uh, you're a Hashem, in uh, plural Yure Hashem, where you are you a God fearer, right? Are you somebody who, who somebody who has a sense of responsibility to a higher authority, right? And so that's the other aspect of you know the talk about our relationship with God. As sort of like a, a covenantal relationship or marital relationship, right? And some little there might be wrestling, challenging, fighting. Some little there might be just pure acquiescence out of love. And sometimes there might be pure acquiescence out of the fear of what might happen if you didn't do it, right? So, you know, um, and you know, sometimes I like, I take out the trash, not because I really want to or like I'm so doting on my wife because, of, but because I don't want to be yelled at later that I didn't, you know, she doesn't yell at me. But, um, I imagine that there are relationships in which that might happen. So, um, uh, <laughs> (laughs) Uh, so, uh, so, so that, that, um, is present within Judaism too, and in Jewish theology. So we go back to some of these questions of, you know, does God reward, does God punish, right? That's an aspect of this issue of, of, uh, of Yirat Hashem, fearing God. Um, the, the Torah implies in a number of instances that God will reward and punish, right? From the very beginning, uh, for, with Abraham, right? God says to Abraham, Lechlecha, uh, the Avarechacha, right? Go forth and I will bless you, right? Implyingly, like, if you do what I'm asking you, then you'll have this covenantal reward. Um, but, and it, you know, goes, uh, right? So the Ten Commandments, right? honor your father and mother uh, so that your days may be uh, lengthened uh, on in the land that I'm going to give you right so there's an implication of if you do what I ask you then there'll be reward uh, and if you don't there will be there will be punishments right and the, the this is where the, the critique that critique that I alluded to before of the Christian tradition, of some Christian traditions came that, you know, the God of the old Testament is God of, of, of punishment and rebuke and wrath, right? Because there are plenty of instances in the old Testament and in particular in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy, um, which if we go back to an earlier conversation, were likely written in the same kind of traditions, priestly traditions. So you can see how some of these, what we have in the Bible in the Torah, um, uh may be a patchwork of a number of different theologies. Not every theology that not every view of God that's represented in the Torah believes in a God that gives direct reward and punishment for uh for observance or for transgression. Right? But Leviticus and Deuteronomy definitely believe that, right? Um the uh so you know if, if you if you observe the commandments, the rains will fall fall in their season. Says the Book of Deuteronomy, uh, and if you don't, God will withhold the rains, and your and everything will dry up, and you will be uh, uh, unable to live on the land that God is giving you. Right, so we we do have that uh, sense within the Jewish tradition. Now, every um, every act of understanding within Judaism, what is God, is in some way trying to. Uh, Uh, trying to make an argument from the available evidence, right? And so that's evidence from uh, a a great rabbi in the uh, ninth century of the common era named Sadia Gaon um, said that there were really four ways of knowing, right? And, and ideally uh, something is only true if it aligns in all four of those ways. He says that um, tradition, revelation, So tradition is like rabbinic tradition, Talmud, right? Um, revelation, meaning Torah, um, uh, reason, philosophy, and science, scientific understanding and, and, and the like empirical evidence, right? Um, revelation, tradition, uh, reason and science, right? So the attempt to understand in Judaism what is God is, in some ways, trying to say, okay, you know, here are the th- kind of like four categories of knowing that we have. I want to try to make an argument that is harmonious in all those categories, uh, incorporates as much of the available evidence as I possibly can in all of those categories, right, and tries to make a coherent statement about what God is. But that means inevitably some things are going to be left on the cutting room floor. You're always going to be picking and choosing, right? So in my theo- my personal theology of God, right, I'll, I might be very high on the, you know, on the, um, you know, God loving meter, right. Uh, And I'll pull out passages from scripture that, and and I'll try to reinterpret it or reimagine the, the passages that portray a different kind of image of God. Or I might say, you know, um, that represents a strand of the tradition that I think we ought to leave behind. And that, that's a, that's a, um, a legitimate move you just got to acknowledge that that's the move that you're doing and right? saying like, I, 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 I want to say that I can't harmonize this passage in Deuteronomy from my view of God. And so I'm just going to point out that that I find is problematic, right? So some people just as an example, um, the, Famous passage in Leviticus that that seems to uh, ban uh, sexual intimacy between men. Um, uh, what some uh, contemporary scholars have done uh, that, uh, um, in order to uh, make Jewish tradition more harmonious with what we understand from contemporary science and. Uh, human dynamics and human sexuality and, and interaction and what we believe about God is to say, I can't explain that text. I can't reinterpret it in light of the way I believe about God and what I know. And so what I'm going to say about the text is it may have made sense for its time and place, but it's no longer relevant to Judaism anymore. So some people do that. Um, that's not what I like to do with that text, but, but it's, what, um, uh, it's what some people do. So yes. Can I put that in the parking lot? I didn't mean I didn't to like open a can of worms with it. I'm just trying to uh, point out, um, uh, I want to I, I put it in the parking lot, not because I want to avoid the conversation, but because it's a longer conversation. Um, and I'm happy to talk about it, just uh, I don't want to get too sidetracked. So, um, um, uh, so an attempt to kind of have a, have a systematic view of God, right? What, uh, what, you know, what uh, academics call theology Um, is always some amount of uh, picking and choosing and interpreting and weaving from the tradition um, a picture that you hope is uh, coherent and logically consistent, right? Um, And throughout Jewish history, there have been attempts to do that. From the very beginning, like I said, the, the Bible represents, uh, I think, multiple traditions. They don't, they are always harmonious about what they believe about God. So if you know one thing that Judaism teaches about God, what would that be? Who said that? Ah, good, Kristen, yeah, say it louder. That God is one. Good. Um, by the way, I'm trying as hard as I can to avoid, uh, gendered pronouns in talking about God. That's my own kind of personal, uh, beat. Um, uh, it's hard. Uh, um, and I recognize that's sort of like a a place of privilege, uh, to, to talk about gendered language that way. It is hard, but I think it's, it's important to do because my view of God is that God is neither he nor she. Um, But yeah, so right, most religious school, you know, Jewish religious school children. One of the first things they learn about God is that God is one. We have a famous passage from the Book of Deuteronomy. It's the cornerstone of two of three Jewish prayer services every day, uh, which is called the Shema. It says, "Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad." Hear, O Israel, uh, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Uh, uh, The the term Adonai there. Uh, which in Hebrew is called Yud Hey Vav Hey. Uh, we don't know how to accurately pronounce it, so it gets substituted.
1: Could you say it again? I think the, uh, yeah.
0: the letters yeah. Yud Hey Vav Hey. Oh. Yud Hey Vav Hey. Um, uh, uh, we don't know how to pronounce it. So it's, it's Hebrew. Hebrew uh, doesn't have um, uh, doesn't have vowels. Um, uh, so there's actually like Hebrew itself requires an oral tradition. Um, and, um, and so God's name is, the letters in it are as close as the Hebrew alphabet has to vowels, so the Yud sound, hey sound, Bab sound, and He sound, but we don't know how it's supposed to be pronounced. Uh, in academic writings, you might see Yahweh, you might see Jehovah, you might write, but, uh, but we don't know how it's pronounced. So, anyway, so, uh, Jewish tradition, instead of attempting to try to pronounce it, uh, substitutes it with the word Adonai, um, at least in, at least in ritual contexts um Adonai translates more or less to lord. Adonai actually means my lord. Um but um uh it's actually the plural it's, it's like the plural of lord. It's the plural of my lords, like my lords. Um but it gets substituted like the King James version of the Bible when it you know like went to like uh, uh rabbinic scholars and said um uh, if, for, from the Greek, you know, like, how do you, or from, from the Aramaic, like, how do you translate this word, right? They say, they, they told him, like, translate it as Lord, right? So that's what King James did in King James' Bible. Um, that's how we have Lord in, in a lot of English translations of the Bible, where you have that word, where it would have been that word, yod in the text, where it's a different word for God, like Elohim, uh, usually just says God. Um, why was I going down there? Oh, right, Shema. Right, so Shema Yisrael, right, that says, uh, Hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Right. So we learn that God is one. But it might surprise you to learn that the, the, the idea that, uh, that there's only one God um, is not universal in the Torah. Um, there are places in the Torah that at least strongly imply that there may be other gods out there. right? So there are some passages actually that are pretty famous That we, uh, where we say that. Uh, um, In uh, every uh, morning and evening prayer service, before the Amida, I know you talked about the Amida with uh, Cana Rosenblatt last week, um, we sing this uh, line from the book of Exodus. It says, Which is, who is like you among the gods, Aronai?" Right? Now, if you look at a prayer book today, they may not translate the word Aileen as gods. They may translate it as the mighty, the powerful, whatever. Those are um, euphemistic translations. They're trying to uh, they're trying to square the circle there um, of saying, "Hey, Judaism is supposed to be monotheistic tradition." They have this text that seems to imply non monotheism. What are we going to do with that? And say, well, it's easier just to translate it in a way that coincides with monotheism, even if we were really accurate about it, that's probably not what the text is saying. The text is probably what the, what scholars call henotheistic, <coughs> which means that there are many gods, but the god of Israel is the best of them, right, or the chief of them, right? So like the, the Greek pantheon, Zeus is the most powerful, but there are lots of other gods too. Um, I saw a hand, yeah? So that's another interesting one. We're... Scholars kind of debate, uh, though it's relatively settled, um, uh, whether Elohim is meant to be gods or God, right? Because the term Elohim is inherently plural. Um, most scholars, uh, for like linguistic and historical and archaeological reasons that are kind of above my pay grade, believe that it's that, that even the word Elohim is talking about one God. Um, uh, but, uh, but there are definitely theories that when the Bible says uh, uh say the first verse in the Torah brashid bara Elohim et the et Haaretz, right uh, which let's for the sake of argument in the beginning God trans- uh, God created the heavens and the earth right uh, uh, some scholars think that that was intended to mean in the beginning the gods created the heavens and the earth um, and some some argue that that it takes a word that in other cultures may have meant God's, but deliberately tries to subvert it in a monotheistic context say it's, a, it's polemical because uh, right? it's, it's, it's making an argument against another tradition. Uh, and so a lot of scholars look at the um, that Genesis story as an example to say that's actually a polemic um, against the Mesopotamian creation myth and uses some of the same tropes as the Mesopotamian creation myth, but tells the story differently as a way of saying like, um, our way of telling the story is not the same as yours and yours is wrong. So we're going to use the same words like Elohim, right? But we're going to mean something different by it. And our argument is that our version of it is more right than yours. Right? Um, so, uh, but, uh, there are definitely thoughts out there that the term L, which is sometimes used in the Torah for God, um, was a different God than yud heh vav um and um there are good there's good archaeological evidence for that. Uh the Canaanites uh uh very uh um what's the word I for? Uh widely worshipped a god called El, but didn't worship a god called Yudhe Vavhe. worship seemed to be unique to particular Tribes among the Israelites, uh, and I think I mentioned to you a few weeks ago a book, a recent book by a scholar named Richard Elliott Freeman on the Exodus. His claim is that the that the that there, the the Exodus that actually happened was not the Exodus that the Torah talks about, <coughs> but the Levites were the ones, a small smaller than what the Torah talks about, a group of Levites f- fled Israel, uh, fled Egyptian slavery, uh, and they were Yudhe Vavhe worshippers. And they brought yud heh worship to their brothers and sisters who were already living in Canaan, worshiping El. And what they ultimately said is, you don't need to give up El in order to worship yud heh they are actually the same God. Theory. That's not there. Um, but, from... Um, uh, uh, from a pretty early stage in Jewish history, uh, certainly by the time the Bible was completed to be redacted, um, it, was, it was generally uh, uh, and widely understood that, uh, that uh, nor, um, normative Judaism, mainstream Judaism, mainstream Jewish tradition believed only in one God. And so, all those passages in the Bible that seem to imply other gods were reinterpreted or, or thought about differently based on on that um, gloss on the tradition, that lens to view the tradition. Um, and so, that's true through this day, right? So, through today, um, if you were to ask any you know in, anybody within the mainstream Jewish community whether or not they believe in God, what does Judaism believe about God? At least. Technically, classically, right that that God is one; that there is one God. Um, so that means that uh, that that polytheism, polytheism uh, uh, meaning uh, uh, worship of more than one god, um, is is outside the tent. It's one of the reasons, um, although not the only reason. One of the reasons why uh, most Jews um, assume. Uh, or, or believe that, um, that, that most forms of Christian belief and practice are outside the pale of Judaism, um, because, uh, Christian practice, uh, um, uh, it's not that it's polytheistic, um, but that it's closer to polytheistic than Judy, than Jews are comfortable with. The idea that, that God can have multiple manifestations, including an incarnate form, um, is, is, uh, uh harder for, uh, monotheistic Jews to, to accept. Uh, and so that includes, um, and I'm have this in my mind because I, uh, because of a meeting I had today, um, uh, uh, people who, who say that they are messianic Jews. Um, what that generally means is people who, uh, essentially believe like Christians, but practice like Jews, right? From the Jewish perspective, that believing like Christians puts them outside the pale of what would be acceptable Jewish belief. Um, interestingly, um, atheism uh, is much more palatable, much more acceptable within uh, Jewish tradition, uh, largely because um, Judaism has always been, even from the time of the Bible, um, has always been uh, much more uh, behaviorally focused than uh, than than uh, belief focused. Um, so, if you if you live Jewishly, uh, then um, uh, then then that puts you in the right side of the tent. Um, uh, even if you, um, uh, but there are certain beliefs that are understood to put you outside the pale. So that would be, that would be one of them. So it's a rejection of God is not necessarily outside the pale. Um, although if you ask, you know, uh, rabbis to the right of me, they would say that they would, they would not encourage it. Um, uh, I also wouldn't necessarily encourage it, but I understand it. And I, uh, think that it's part of this spirit of God wrestling. Um, but, uh, um, uh, but belief in, in more than one God, uh, is not. Now an interesting question is why is this so fundamental, right? Why, why does it matter to Judaism, whether there's one God or five gods? Um, as long as we'll, we'll just like put that kind of in the ether, um, I think it's an important question to ask. I sometimes ask it to religious school children. You know, like, what, what, what difference does it make if there's one God or five gods? Um, my short answer is I think that Judaism is making a moral claim by saying that there's only one God. Um, uh, and uh, the, that moral claim is in part about our relationship to each other. If there's only one God, um, then all of us emerge from the same source and we're all related to one another. Uh, I think that that's at least in part what Judaism is trying to say by that. Um, all, all, Jews. all people, all people. Um, I think the monotheistic tradition um, is is to me similar to a to a, a, a monistic tradition, essentially meaning that um, uh, if, if God is what the Bible says that that God is, or at least approximates what the Bible says that God is, um, then then it means that all existence emerges from a single source.
1: That gets into the, the why and the chosen.
0: I'm ah, sorry. yeah, um, that's a really good question. That's a really good question. So, what do you think? <laughs>
2: chosen? Why is there chosen if there's no, unlike some forms of Christianity, you have to believe this, and you go to heaven,
1: you get this. Right. But what I've understood is, well, everyone can be can be part of the world to come. Okay, so but if it's the same God, and everyone can be a part of the world to come, then what's, then we're just the, the, the chosenness. What does that yeah that get you or not
0: get you. Yeah. and I'm, I don't know so like, I, what I the way I think about it, so I'm going to sort of like fast forward to my own thoughts about it um, but this, uh, this is going to be a, a short answer to a long question um, uh, is that uh, chosenness doesn't get you anything uh, it gives you something which is responsibility um, So, uh, so that's what I believe the Jewish tradition means by chosenness is that uh, Jews are in some way responsible to, uh, to humanity in a way that other people may not be. Now, that doesn't mean that other people aren't. Um, so I think that there's two ways of thinking about this. Right now, I'm in one camp, but I think it could be a different camp. Okay? One camp, the camp that I'm in, is that, um, is that all people are chosen people, uh, but chosen for different things and for different reasons. Um, and so sometimes you'll hear Cantor and I sing uh, in the liturgy, uh, the traditional litur- liturgy says Kivanu uh, tanu Kidashta miko uh right so that you have uh, chosen us and have sanctified us from all the, of the nations right an exclusionary statement uh, and what we sometimes say is with all of the nations so right so that that, that uh, making a statement saying that other nations are also chosen right and Jews are chosen for a particular thing but I think that uh, um, that to me, the the, the claim that, that uh, Jewish tradition is making is that we have a broader responsibility to humanity, and that's what's implied by chosenness, that God uh, had designs for what humanity would be like and look like, uh, and those, at least in the Torah's telling, um, those designs didn't quite work out as planned in the first couple of goes at it. Uh, and so uh, God's third try was to say, okay, I'm going to try to create um, a, a, a community that um, a, a community of people that, uh, that that ministers to the rest of humanity in order to get humanity to be what I want humanity to be, um, because my attempts at kind of engineering it from the outset, whether by creating it into humanity or, like, wiping out all humanity and starting again um, didn't work so well. So I'm going to just, I'm going to, like, that, that was a good strategy. I'm going to try a different strategy, which is, like, uh, creating a model community. We haven't quite accomplished that, I think, um, but uh, but that I think is is uh, what it is to me, and I think that it's that it's in part of the same um, uh, uh, moral claim of monotheism that what God. Um, uh, I have a teacher who uh, says of God um, that nothing became something so that something might become nothing. Um. Well, you to noodle that for a bit but I'll put it a little bit differently you know um, one became many so that many could become one um, so the second thing that is um, uh, prevalent within Jewish theology in addition to monotheism is a dynamic between what you might call uh, imminence and transcendence so what are those two things what do they mean what's transcendence what? It's like bigger than us. Good. Bigger than us. Excellent. And, and imminence? We're bigger than us, outside of us, separate from us. Imminence? Bigger us. Good. With us, it's like uh, in Aladdin, right, uh, where the genie comes out, like phenomenal cosmic power, any bitty living space, right? That's the dynamic that God has uh, in Jewish tradition. Is this some some te- some kind of tension between uh, between being totally out there, other, separate, radically different from all other aspects of existence, and being intimately involved in the affairs of the world and of human beings. So in an attempt to kind of create a systematic theology, right, of saying, you know, what what God is, you have to deal with that problem of of having a God that's simultaneously on some level transcendent and imminent. Now what Judaism tends not to do is go to either extreme, right, so there are within theologies two extremes, right, the the theology that was said to be uh, like Jefferson's theology of like the watchmaker God, right, so God... Uh, basically created the universe and then stopped caring about it, right? Like just is totally outside of it, set it in motion. That's it. Maybe that was Aristotle's God too from uh, even before that. Um, And there are Jewish theologies that go more in that direction. But generally speaking, they stop short of saying God is not involved at all in the world, right? Because that seems to not go along with the available evidence, at least from the, from the Torah, what the Torah says of God is that God is in some way involved in the world. So you have to square that circle. Uh, if you want to say that God uh, is radically other than, the, than, than everything else in existence, then you have to, and therefore is totally separate from and outside of existence, say, okay, well then what do you do with all those passages in the Torah that seem to imply that God is doing things in the world all the time, right? So uh, on the one hand. On the other hand, you have uh, what you might call pantheism. Which is that God is synonymous with existence, right? Synonymous with creation, right? That that, uh, that, that God is the wall and God is the tree and the God, right? Um, uh, there are pantheistic Jewish theologies, right? Um, uh, but but generally speaking, um, they they try to balance that on some level with um, uh, with 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 the uh, with the view of God's transcendence because you do have that within. Um, within Jewish tradition as well, that that there is something radically other and separate of God, and that there is um, a distinction on some level between God and the world. Right? There's there's a relational dynamic within the Torah. Right? God speaks to Moses. Right? Well, if God is Moses. Then how can God speak to Moses? Right? So so Jewish theologies have to deal with that. So some so usually Jewish theologies that 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 are trying to Create a coherent view of God are somewhere in the middle between those two extremes, between Deism and between Pantheism. Um, some are more over here, and some are more over here. Um, so I'll just, you know, just as uh, two examples, uh, Maimonides uh, is much more over here toward toward Deism. Um, he's a very important uh, medieval Jewish thinker. We'll talk about him in a few weeks. Um, in more detail. Uh, whereas, especially in modern times, um, some, of the, some of the most important non-Orthodox theologians in modern times are closer to pantheism over here. Mordechai Kaplan is probably the most important of them. Uh, Harold Kushner, who some of you are reading now, uh, also wrote a book uh, called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. He's closer to this side. Um, my teacher, Brad Artson, um, is closer to this side. So this Art Green, who's probably <coughs> one of the most important living uh, non-Orthodox Jewish theologians, is is close to that side. So anyway, so so, so um, that's an interesting kind of like sociological question of why what happened to Jewish thought in the modern period that has shifted us over to this direction. But <coughs> although there are plenty of people who, especially after the Holocaust, ended up over here, right? We're saying, saying, you know, this is an it, it, Evidence that God is not involved in the world. Right? Holocaust is much harder to explain some, on some level for people over here. Not entirely hard, but hard, right? Bad things happen to good people, kind of question. So, um, but you can see, look for example, look for a minute on page one seventeen, and you can see this dynamic playing out in. I'm about to say real time. But that doesn't really make sense because it's a text. Real text um in one of the most uh commonly used pieces of Jewish liturgy. It's a piece of liturgy called a Olam. It's uh uh recited in basically every Jewish at the every Jewish prayer service. Um sometimes the kids come up and sing it. Um it's a it's a beautiful, beautiful poem. It's written in incredible rhythm. You can like put it to any tune. Um it's it's amazing. It was written by a a a, a rabbi poet named uh Solomon uh, Ibn Gaviral Uh, in the 11th century. Um, And look at the, look at, it's right. It's got basically two halves. So the eternal one ruled before the birth of every living thing. When God made all according to his will, then God was known as King. When all is ended, God will reign alone in awesome majesty. God was, God is, and God will be glorious for all eternity. Peerless and unique is God with none at all to be compared beginningless and endless to God's vast dominion is not shared, right? So God is is totally other, totally different, peerless, unique, uh, transcending time, right? Um, Transcending space. God's going to be around after everything else is gone. And then he is my God and my redeemer, my refuge in times of struggle. God is my support and my shelter, the one who fills my cup when I call into God's palm I place my spirit, when I wake and when I sleep, God is with me, body and soul. God is with me, I am not afraid. Phenomenal cosmic power, itty bitty living space, right? That we have this right in in um, in one poem that we recite at the end of every prayer service. God is both totally different than all of creation and yet at the same time intimately involved in the life of every single person but that's on some level, that's a that's a basic paradox um, uh, about God right Judaism kind of lives that's the God wrestling thing Judaism embraces that paradox uh, doesn't try to run away from it and say God is all transcendent or, or all imminent that would be maybe philosophically easier. Um, so if we weren't kind of in uh, Sadio gaon's four categories and we could take uh, revelation and reason out of it and say, say, okay, what Torah says about God, that's nice. What the rabbinic tradition says about God, that's nice. But if we're like being pure, we're feeling the cool alpine breeze of pure reason, uh, then we might say that God's gotta either be totally outside of existence, or like totally synonymous with existence, right? Um, uh, we might say, it, we might be in the purely scientific camp and say there's no, there's no evidence uh, for or against, right? And so the, um, uh, uh, in, you know, in, until proven, it's just theory. Right, um, or, or pure speculation. Right, and so you can believe it if you want, and uh, I believe that there's a flying spaghetti monster because you can't prove that there's otherwise. Right, but that's the, uh, and so that's a, a you know feeling the alpine breeze of cool hard logic. That's you can do that. But the Jewish tradition, the uh, at least religious Jewish tradition, doesn't live in those spa- live In that space, it, it embraces those first two categories on some level of of, re- of revelation and tradition. And it says, "Okay, uh, we believe that what our tradition is saying about God—at least the experience of God—is um, it involves these two different things, and so our understanding of God has to include both of those things." All right, let me pause there for a second. Questions, comments? One of the coolest. Um, approaches to this I think um, is that of the Jewish mystics, the Kabbalists um, and uh, what they they, they, they um, said that there is uh, God of the philosophers and God of experience um, and we don't know how those two things are connected um, and, and, and so we want to create a system in which we identify the fact that there's an unknowable Infinite reality of God that we may not be able to access or understand, um, and also an imminent reality of God that we can access and understand. Um, so the Kabbalists called the first category Ein Sof, which is means without end or eternal, infinite, and uh, and the other category um, they called um, the Sfirot uh, or Adam HaKadmon. Um, uh, which uh, were a series of different attributes of God um, that, um, that, that that the mystics believed were always at play in the world and that we could relate to and, and, and access and, and understand. Um, okay, so here's what I want to do uh, for a few minutes next. Um, look on page 118, and you see on page 118... Um, about almost fifty different terms and names for God in Jewish tradition. Um, so back to the spirit of God wrestling, right? The, I mean, a, a, a tradition that um, that doesn't have their idea of God uh, universally, fully, and systematically worked out is a tradition that has fifty different terms for God. Um, a tradition that believes on some level that God is. Um, uh, unknowable and unattainable uh, through human intellect um, is a tradition that has 50 names for God, right? Um, A a tradition that that believes that basically anything that humans have to say about God is going to be metaphor or is going to be relational, how we encounter God in the world is a tradition that has 50 different names for God. So these are uh, about fifty names for God that the tradition has, uh, and what I want you to do is just individually um, and the instructions are on the page. go through the list of names and put a check next to five names that you feel uh, comfortable with or are meaningful to you, and an X by five names that you do not feel comfortable with or are not meaningful to you, and a question mark by five names that surprised you or you don't understand or you want to discuss. Okay, so the instructions are on the page. Uh, take a few minutes, check the ones that you like, five that you like, five that you don't, and a question next to the ones that you have questions about. Okay, um, even if you're not quite done, it's okay. What I want you to do is find a partner and compare and contrast your lists with, uh, with, with your partner. Uh, And in case you didn't realize, number twelve on the list, YHvh is the name that we were mentioning before is the uh, name of the let's say the proper name of God in the Torah, uh, which the Hebrew letters Yud Hey Vav Hey. Guys, take a few minutes, find a partner, compare and contrast lists. All right, why don't we come back together for a second? I want to I hear what was going on in your conversations. It, it occurred to me that uh, I, I, um, the very fact of this list um, uh, made me want to point out a couple of things related to some questions that people asked uh, uh, earlier. So the first is about um, how we write the word God. Um, so first of all, as you can see, um, God is not identified by one name, by one term within the Jewish tradition. There are terms that are more common and more prevalent. Some terms that are understood by tradition to be, um, uh, more, uh, uh, uh proper names for God and some that, that are understood to be more like nicknames or metaphorical. Uh, and so because of all of that, there is a desire, uh, to, uh, to, uh, for a couple things. The first is, um, uh, to, avoid as best we can, uh, mislabeling God. Um, uh, so, um, uh uh, 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 and so one of, that's one of the reasons why you might see the word God written like, like this out of a recognition that, that every name that we ascribe to God is in some sense an approximation of a name and so it's sort of an indication that it's an approximation of name. The other reason is that um uh names have power uh and have significance. Um and uh, and so since we're talking about the name of God it's their it, their they're names that have uh tr- in Jewish tradition a tremendous amount of significance. Uh and so there's a um uh, uh they're, they're the second the third commandment is uh um uh uh, uh, not to uh, swear falsely by God's name, which uh, Jewish tradition um, understands as a prohibition on invoking God's name for no purpose. So the assumption is that, that that's both in in writing and in speech. Speech, don't invoke God's name for no purpose. Um, and I just, I wanted to add one thing to this, which is that my teacher, Brad Artson, um, he says that in Jewish tradition, uh, we believe that God's name is ineffable. When you can't pronounce God's name, uh, you'd about, hey, we don't know how to pronounce it. God's name is ineffable. So the third commandment is telling us, don't F it. Uh, so, um, so, um, uh, uh, so, both in speech and in writing. Uh, and so what that means is, one of the things that means in Jewish tradition is that, that if we write God's name down, we shouldn't destroy it. And, we, uh, and we, shouldn't, uh, we certainly shouldn't write it knowing that it's going to be destroyed. And if we're going to write something that we know is going to be destroyed, then we should do something to, uh, to, to change or manipulate the name so that it's not exactly God's name that we're writing. Which is also why you'll sometimes see God written like this. Or you'll see uh, people, will, people won't use the word God, they'll use the word Hashem, which is, which is sort of a substitute, meaning the name right? So we're not saying the name, It's like Voldemort. We're just saying, right? It's like the name that we're not saying. Um, uh, so, um, uh, uh, now uh, I'm not as strict about some of that. At least I'm not strict about, first of all, I'm not strict about using the, the, the word God, uh, in conversation, especially not in teaching, but in conversation, um, uh, or to write the word God, um, because I don't believe that that's a name of God in Judaism, um, and I, I think that that's a job description, not a name. Uh, and so I will. If I was writing, if I was writing God's proper name, Yehovah say, in a way that, uh, or Adonai, uh, the, the actual writing of Adonai, um, in a way that I, like I, if I was writing on the board and knew I was going to erase it, I would write it. That I would write differently right so usually it's like you dash a dash B dash a. So you're like breaking it up, so it's not you're not actually writing. It. Um, uh, you can you can you can and should do whatever you're comfortable doing. Um, uh, <laughs> I uh, but I, I I tend to um, not be um, so like hung up on writing God G D. Something else I've seen there that I like <laughs> a lot is instead kind of G dash D, this i get been kind. Um, is, is this is next, that's supposed to be an explanation <laughs> the relationship between God and prayer um, I think that that also goes back to um, uh, what we were saying before about the uh, interplay in Judaism between um, the, the, the relationship of God to the world, right? Is God totally outside and other than, than the world in creation? Is totally God totally synonymous with the world in creation, right? I, I think in, on some level, in either of those schemes, prayer doesn't really make a lot of sense the way that we generally understand prayer. So either uh, either you say you shouldn't pray or you got to re- reimagine what prayer means in, in those contexts. Um, usually what people would say is that prayer is more about the prayer, than the prayer that's being uttered. But Jewish tradition, at least classically, doesn't believe that way about prayer. It believes that prayer is in some way, uh, real and relational. And that, um, and, and by, by that, it means that, um, that God has the capacity to, uh, to act in response to a prayer that we utter. Right. So, um, uh, uh so, uh, it, it means, I guess a couple things. The first is, I think it's, it's certainly possible to have meaningful prayer in Judaism uh, uh, if you either don't believe in God or don't know whether you whether you believe in God at all or what you believe about God. I certainly think that's true. Uh, but traditionally speaking, God um, uh, and and a belief in God and a belief in in the relationship between humanity and God um, has has uh, always been a part of Jewish prayer. And an assumption about the uh, about the directionality and the efficacy of Jewish prayer, um, so that uh, you know, uh, uh, Cantor and I are studying um, uh, some texts about prayer by Abraham Joshua Heschel, who I've mentioned before. Um, he's got a great collection of essays on prayer called Man's Quest for God, um, and he says pretty um, pretty bluntly there um, that, uh, that 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 uh, that prayer without God is meaningless, um, and I think that. If you take the tradition seriously and literally, um, that the, the, the classical formulation of a prayer is Baruch Adonai Elohim, right? It's, it's, it's in second person directional to God um, as the power who has the capacity to do things in the world and might actually do them. right? So that's not, that's not a God who's deist. Right? it's also not a god who is uh, like totally synonymous with creation because there's actually a relational conversation there. Um, so it, it's there's obviously not a, a quick and simple answer they can give about the relationship between God and prayer, other than to say, classically within Judaism, God um, is an important part of prayer and the presumed direction of most prayers. Um, the other thing I wanted to uh, add into this conversation was anthropomorphism. You can see in a lot of these. Uh, terms for God that we uh, just encountered, there's a lot of anthropomorphism, there's a lot of uh, human metaphors um, uh, uh, for, for God um, uh, some of them are very gendered uh, and you know, it's, it's um, an ongoing project at least in some sectors of Judaism to, um, to degender or regender Judaism um, uh, I think they're worthy projects um, because a lot of the language we use is, is very gendered. And I, I think personally, I find it very difficult, um, other than the, like the sort of like tradition and nostalgia factor of it. Like it, that's just how I grew up learning and, and talking about God and relating to God. So it's like hard to break that habit. Um, you know, my daughter, um, uh, uh, who's six now, um, I think like from the earliest time she was ever talking about God referred to God as a she, and we never stopped her from doing it. Uh, so like still today always refers to God as a she until she started going to an Orthodox day school and started hearing God as a he and like now, uh, has problems. So, um, uh, um, uh, so I've been thinking a lot about this lately uh, because of that. But, um, uh, I think that, but, but all of that goes to say that you know um, I think Freud said that um, playing on the verse in Genesis that says that God created humanity in God's image, and you know that Freud suggested that that man creates God in man's image. Right? I think that it's possible that both of those things are true. Right? That 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 God is that God created humanity in God's image, uh, and our limited capacity to understand or appreciate what God might be is totally dependent on our experience. We anthropomorphize everything. It's why when you see the movie Zootopia, the animals are all talking like and acting like people, right? Animals don't talk like that. Animals don't act like that, but that's how we relate to things. That's how we understand things. Um, it's a limitation of, of who we are or what they are. So, um, you know, uh, there's a great, uh, he's uh, he, a great 20th century Jewish theologian named Louis Jacobs, um, or Louis Jacobs, um, and uh, he said that of course God. He was talking about the idea of a personal theology, which is um, sort of like you know, uh, kind of like somewhere in the middle of that spectrum that I was talking about tonight. The the God of the Bible that's very anthropomorphized human language. Says um, that, of course, God is not a person, but for us to talk about God as anything other than a person is to make God less than a person. And so he says, I'm going to keep talking about God in anthropomorphized terms, recognizing that it's inherently flawed to do so, but the alternative is to demote God rather than to promote God. I thought that was an, an interesting and compelling argument. So, uh, anyway, um, let's talk about these terms. What, what did you find compelling? What did you find off-putting? What did you struggle with? Uh, You know, I, it's funny. I struggle with that a lot too. The, um, uh, oh, I remember what it was. So the, uh, the conservative movement, uh, has, um, uh, suggested liturgy for same-sex marriages. And for same-sex wedding ceremonies. And, um, and so I was doing a, uh, a, a same-sex uh, wedding ceremony uh, for two men this summer. And, uh, and I was like thinking about what liturgy I wanted to use. And one of the prayers, uh, says, um, says, uh, God look down from your heavenly abode, right? Or something like that. And I was like, oh. I don't think I want to say that. Like, I don't know if like God has an abode. Like, uh, and if, it, if God does, it's not exclusively in heaven. Right. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like think of like the care bearers, like living on cloud, living on a cloud. Yeah. That's God's abode. A cloud castle, Right. I also, you know, because like all I did growing up was watch cartoons, I also I struggle, I like the term in Hebrew Rebona Shalalala, just like the, the way it like sounds on the tongue, um, number 48 um, but I struggle with master of the universe yeah. I think of He-Man, right yeah Never get that up. yeah, sorry about that <laughs> others that people really liked or really didn't like, really or had questions about
4: I'm number forty-one, the hidden one, right? Yeah. There it is. That
0: was. It don't seem right. You know, yeah. You don't relate to God as hidden.
4: No.
0: Yeah. Um. It's it's that's great. That's great.
4: Yeah. And why would
0: he be terrifying? Number six. Ah, yeah. Terrifying one.
4: That's too strong.
0: Yeah, um, another way of, of putting that is the same root I was using before to talk about God, fear, fear of God, mm-hmm. right? So, um, uh, like, 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 uh, or you might say, awesome one, right? Uh, uh, awesome God. Um, we say that all the time in, in prayers, right? HaEl um, in the Amida it starts Hagadol Hagibor ve'hanora, right? The the, the great, uh, powerful, and awesome or terrifying God. Um, I think, you know, um, sorry, we keep on saying your name. Uh, Um, uh, do you know what that's what your name meant? No. Uh, Um, call you the terrifying one. No. Um, (laughs) um, uh, and, um, uh, uh, you know, I think it, it relates to this idea that, you know, that, that, uh, from Jewish perspective, um, God is a powerful force and a a moral force. And so those two things combined means that, um, that, that we, we as flawed human beings might have what to fear. Right. Um, uh, but I get not being able to relate to God as a, as a a terrifying figure.
2: Well, and so at that point, um, when we open the door for Eliyahu, do you say that, that, that part of the prayer for you personally, is that part of your Seder
0: where you acknowledge the terrifying one that will unleash um, a wrath on other nations? I don't. I don't. Um, um uh, I've read some good commentaries of that have tried to open it up in different ways, or at least contextualize it. Um I, I you know, I certainly understand from uh the first pers- from perspective of Jewish history that there, there are, were many periods of Jewish history when Jews opened their door on Seder night. Um, uh, they had reason both to be afraid and to desire uh, uh, retribution on people who might otherwise be coming through that door. Um, but, uh, but yeah, but I, I, I don't 25. Like I've got a question mark
3: to that one because if God has the breath of all
1: and put that in it, God is like the breath
0: of evil as well. Hmm. <laughs> Uh, it is an excellent, excellent question. Right? Why do bad things happen to good people? Um, if, if God, right, first of all, if there's one God, um, which implies he's sort of like one power in the universe, uh, one power in the cosmos, ultimately, uh, then that seems to imply that bad does come from God. Isaiah, the, the prophet Isaiah, says that explicitly. Right, um, uh, that uh, um, I, I am good. I am Ose Shalom um, Uvore uh, Yotzer I am Maker of Light and the Creator of Darkness. Ose Shalom Uvore I am the the Maker of uh, Peace and uh, the Doer of Evil. Right. Uh, interestingly, the prayer book takes that verse puts it in the morning service and changes it to say, um uh Yotzer or creator of uh, uh light and uh and maker of darkness, Shalom, maker of peace, uh Uvore etakol, creator of everything. Right? So it takes out the edge of that passage. Um uh so um uh quite possibly yeah. To say that God is uh, uh, to, to say that God is one—that um, that's one of the challenges of the of the problem of evil. It implies that God is responsible for evil. Um, uh, Maimonides, who's remember on this sort of edge of the spectrum, says that evil is um, is a deprivation of God. So it's you know places in the world that are not yet uh, filled with the divine presence. Um, <laughs> Uh, so it leads to a question of whether or not all the omnis are authentic to Judaism. Uh, and I think that there's good evidence to suggest that they're not. Um, so that's a good one for omnipresent. Uh, there are places in the Bible where God seems to not know that something's going on in one place versus another place. That's also a challenge for omniscience, right? That God is all knowing, right? Um, uh, uh uh, uh, another challenge for omniscience, right? That uh, that God created humanity and then is the surprised that they're all evil,
1: right? <laughs> uh, that is like my childhood question, like, so then why would you put the apple there? Right. Like, why put the cookie on the table and then be mad that the little kid ate it? Like, why would you put it there? You know what I was right. going to do with it. Cause right. I'm a little kid, like, and...
0: No, yeah, but, like, no, it's an, it? It, no. It's an excellent question. It's a, it's a perfect question, right? I, listen, it's it's only it's uh, it's. But the question only makes sense if you assume that God is uh, is is all knowing, right? If God is not all knowing, then maybe God doesn't know how that whole scene is going to turn out. Maybe God, you know, is genuinely curious. What would what, what would human beings do? I think that, that that's an actually plausible way of reading it. Judaism also believes in human freedom, right? But if God knows the outcome of things, then you actually don't have freedom, right? So if it, so, so maybe God wants to know, like, what are these people going to do with this freedom that I'm giving them? Oh, I see, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> oops! <laughs> Screw that one up. Well, I got two choices here. I can like remake the world without freedom, or just remake the world with freedom. Um, yeah, so <laughs> Let's try again. Let me try again.
2: Yeah.